Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to another episode, believe the fourth episode of the Geopolitical Pivot. This is your host, Sanaj McDowell, and I would like to welcome uh, my listeners and our viewers here um, as we get back into the groove of things uh, when discussing the importance of political geography and the various different topics, both current, past, uh, and future, uh, that we endure when we discuss the continuation of human society, human civilization around the world. Uh, for the most part, I know it's been about a little bit over a week hiatus, um, almost two weeks, um, since the last time that we have made a podcast episode, but I believe now we are good to go with scheduling, and we will try to produce one to two different episodes a week. Uh, we do have uh, some more individuals that may be coming to join the Pivot team, the Pivot family, um, to discuss a wide variety of topics, whether that's in the Middle East, uh, the Americas, Europe, uh, Asia, um, so on and so forth. So with that being said, I just want to get right into it. Um, and this particular episode is something that has a lot of pertinence. Um, to American security policy, national security, um, and defense policy and strategy, particularly in the Middle East. And this particular subject continues constantly uh, to be a grave danger, not just to U.S. personnel that are located in the Middle East, but also U.S. allies, uh, regional allies, such as Saudi Arabia, um, as well as uh, Israel, where even to an extent some of the, the Gulf states, where this one particular country that we're going to do particular this uh, brief about 30 45 minute profile uh, on their growing ballistic missile capabilities. Um, this particular country has been quite controversial since its revolution in 1979, and it has been at the top as the epitome of what it means to be a state sponsor of terrorism um, across the world, not just the Middle East. And we speak no other of Iran. Uh, Iran, since 1979, is known to be the Islamic Republic. It is a theocratic uh, government uh, ran by a supreme leader, the Ayatollah. Uh, however, it does have a president um, as well as uh, parliament and other types of political institutions that may have the framework of a republic. However, it is very centralized authority within their concept of Islamic revolutionary ideology uh, under the framework or the guidance of the supreme leader, the Ayatollah, um, as well as his council of clerics. But this particular uh, episode is not on the Ayatollah himself, um, as well as the, the institutions of the, the Iranian, the Shia clerics in the government. But this is more so of the, uh, the growing Iranian ballistic missile threat that's not just to Middle Eastern countries or Israel and Saudi Arabia, but also the United States, as well as strategic energy infrastructure. We saw that with the bombings of the Saudi Arabian oil fields, uh, which Iran was suspected to be behind, 
um, due to the trajectory of the ballistic missiles. Um, it's controversy that, oh, well, maybe the ballistic missiles came from Iran itself, or it was launched by the Houthis in uh, Yemen, which has more credibility. But in order for us to understand how exactly we got here, or how Iran has gotten to this this capacity, this capability, to now push forward space technology, which is only allowing for further range and greater technological acquisition for the development of much more precision or much more precise um, precision guided munitions for these ballistic missiles. Um, so with that being said, we're going to jump right into the historical context to how exactly Iran has equipped itself with a framework um, to possess such a, a diverse ballistic missile system. And what, is that, what does it mean uh, for the Middle East? Um, is also to keep in mind that because Iran is amongst the top, if not the top, state sponsor of terrorism, it's interesting to see that particular terrorist organizations that are clients to the Islamic Republic, they too also possess ballistic missile capabilities, as well as now the growing usage of drones. All of that comes from the logistical support given from Iran. But before we can get into that, we have to go back primarily to the 1980s. And <clears throat> the reason why we have to go back to the 1980s, because we have to talk about the Iran-Iraq War of 1980 to 1988. And from this eight-year war, which was literally, it started one year after the revolution, we can kind of see the, the growing developments of the Iranian defense psyche of the necessity of having a robust, diverse, and very capable ballistic missile system. So, <clears throat> we're going to delve right into this, where the the main area, or at least the main component of this notion of the Iran-Iraq War, we have to go to the War of the Cities, which started in February of 1984 and lasted and continued until 1987. Um, when you're looking at military comparisons between Iraq and Iran, Saddam Hussein, who was leading the Arab Republic of Iraq at that time, had the, the utmost, he, he had the advantage, nonstop, 100%. He had the advantage, not just in the aerial firepower, but also the launching of ballistic missiles. Um, <clears throat> that goes back at least for the development of Iraq, that goes back to its friendship with then the USSR, the Union of Sovereign Socialist Republics. Um, in particular, there was this treaty of friendship that was signed between Iraq and the Soviet Union back in 1972, uh, where essentially Iraq received about 800 short-range ballistic missiles. Um which was then utilized during the Iran-Iraq War. Um, although that they had this, this ballistic missile uh, capabilities, we have to look at, well, the limited capacity of these ballistic missiles. Uh, SCUB-B uh, short-range tactical ballistic missiles only really have a range of about 185 miles. Um, so it's... It was good enough to be utilized at the direct borders of Iran-Iraq, um, heavy damage surely, 
Um, but it wasn't enough really to get to the capital. In order to get to the capital of Tehran, if you're looking at the distance from Baghdad and Tehran, you need something to go at least 450 miles. Um, with that being said, you have a Scud B missile, which at that time, even to this day right now, is being utilized by both terrorists, and even it was also used um, in 2003 uh, with the invasion of Iraq. It's very hard to intercept because just the ballistic missile trajectories that the the Scud missile, at least the Scud series, is very is a very lethal series that it's very low cost to produce and it can be produced massively and very cheaply, and it's very effective for a lot of reasons, not just psychological, but it's highly mobile. So, getting back to the Iraqi Republic and the the Iran. Uh, that on Iraq war, the Scud B became the framework then for Saddam Hussein's desire for um, to try to possess the ballistic missile technology to then push that for the establishment of a ballistic missile that has the range of at least 410, 415 miles. And then that becomes the Al Hussein uh, ballistic missile um, that was utilized. Um, in 1988, um, well, it was completed in 87, but entered service late 87 into 88. And the whole point of this is this, it was a psychological reason. Saddam Hussein, being the butcher that he was, it was psychological. He wanted to demoralize Iranian cities through indiscriminate civilian bombings. That's what it came down to. Saddam Hussein didn't really care who he killed, so long as that the the notion was to bring the Iranians to to their knees, to bring them to a diplomatic table to negotiate, essentially, uh, to to further I say expand the dreams of Saddam Hussein and his neo Baathist rather personality cult. Um, very authoritarian, well, not authoritarian, totalitarian um, type of governance. But it did the exact opposite. Um, Ayatollah Khomeini, literally, he used the, the tactics of Saddam Hussein, as well as his alliances with the Iranian nationalists, as well as the clerics, and his loose coalition of anti, it was really anti-Shah Iran, coalition that brought the Islamic Revolution into being, it was the mobilization of this and the establishment of what's now the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, that really uh, assisted in the, the pushing back of Saddam Hussein's military, primarily his paramilitary. Uh, but not just that, but also the, the geography of Iran. The majority of Iran, if you look at um, its topography, it's very mountainous, except for the areas in western Iran toward the the border with Iraq, hence where the bulk of this battle happened. Um, with that, with you know, Iraq was if you're looking at it from a purely military strategy, technically Iraq should have the have the advantage as it's primarily flat desert land between Baghdad, which is much more closer to the border uh, between Iran and Iraq. Uh, it should have been much more easier to replenish front lines and forces and provide uh, 
uh, necessary logistical assistance, um, as he also had Air Force uh, advantage, a naval advantage, um, and a sizable military advantage. He was supported both by the Soviet Union and the United States. But that wasn't really the case as, as he got towards the much more mountainous regions of Iran. Um, Iran was able to push back to the, Iraq, to the Iraq border. And that for the next eight years, at least for eight years in total, was where the majority of the attacks happened. As well as some anti-ship operations in uh, the Persian Gulf, which resulted in the United States shooting down a passenger Iranian uh, commercial plane, thinking that it was being used for covert Iranian military operations. But the pursuit of the Iranian ballistic missile program really stemmed from this notion of just continual missile bombardments from Saddam Hussein for at least four years. Um, the Iran-Iraq war, at least for those four years of the War of the Cities, really provided a glimpse of what Iran's true security vulnerabilities were. And at that point, it came to the notion that they had to think of a framework. Well, what is the best way to ensure the full security of our rather porous, rather open borders with Iraq, as well as to repel um, any type of adversary to the Iranian Islamic revolutionary ideology. So, with that, we move on to Iran using these these realities, these new vulnerabilities, and establishing a series of negotiations with a lot of, well, at that time, there were particular countries that were known to have ballistic missiles, especially Scud ballistic missiles. And those countries, if you had Scud missiles, nine times out of ten, you were very friendly with the Soviet Union, who were the producers of said uh, ballistic missiles. And they included Libya, they included Syria, China, and North Korea. At this time, Libya was under brotherly leader Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, Syria was under Hafez al-Assad, the father of now President Bashar al-Assad. North Korea was under Kim Il-sung. And China was under Deng Xiaoping. Uh, the whole point of these negotiations was simply to acquire not just the physical ballistic missiles on these SCUD missiles, but also to receive or acquire the technological frameworks for Iran to produce their own very rapidly. So we're talking about very mass serial productions of at least SCUD-B ballistic missiles. So a year after the beginning of the War of the Cities, so in 1985, Iran started to acquire the Scud B missiles to use as a counter a counter reaction to Saddam Hussein's massive onslaught, primarily to target Iraqi cities um, directly on the other side of the Iraqi border. Um, but as you as we'll as I'll point out later on, that there are some very clear similarities on not just the design and the framework of these blissignesses of Iran, but also the development processes of a, a very core center friend, partner, covert and overt, 
uh, with Iran. And that's the DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Since the 1980s, so we're talking about since the mid-1980s, so 1985, again, this is during the War of the Cities period, uh, North Korea has contributed, contributed significantly the most um, towards the expansion of the arsenal for Iran. Not even just providing physical ballistic missiles, but we're talking about actual sponsoring, um, partnering, um, providing education and technical support. And the DPRK learned the development, at least, of ballistic missiles, as well as the pursuit of nuclear warhead ballistic missiles since the 1950s, after the end of the Korean War. And a lot of North Korean scientists and engineers were trained in the Soviet Union to learn how to essentially develop their own variants of domestic Soviet weaponry. If you look at how Iranian ballistic missiles are shaped and formed, and you look and you look at the comparisons of the visuals as well as the specifications of the North Koreans, you kind of see a, uh, a a similarity. Uh, but back to this, back to this, back to before I go off on that tangent with uh, about North Korea, we're gonna give back to Iran. Uh, for to give a little statistics about how the pursuit of ballistic missiles actually expanded the network of diplomatic relationships for the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, according to, there's an organization called United Against Nuclear Iran, um, it was estimated that by 1982, the People's Republic of China and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea contributed to 40% of Iranian weapon imports, and that grew to approximately 70%, so 30% increase over the period of five years, so by 1987. North Korea and China were the two main contributors to Iranian, the Iranian domestic military industrial complex. Uh, to further this, uh, the North Korean, the initial North Korean Iranian partnership ex uh, expanded and sustained itself really until 1991 um, when the Soviet Union had collapsed. Once that collapsed, North Korea could, no, could not really sustain itself at the same capacities due to those subsidies and assistance um, from the Soviet Union, not just from energy resources, but also infrastructure and military, that all ceased. And Russia at that point, the inheritance, so you couldn't afford that. Um, Russia had their own problems going through the cross of the 1990s with their own financial crises and um, rampant uh, corruption as people had to call it crony capitalism, uh, with their oligarchs, which contributed to the rise of Vladimir Putin starting in 1999. Uh, but getting back to this, once the Soviet Union had collapsed, the Islamic Republic of Iran used their vast energy resources um, to acquire an extensive uh, proto well, not protocol, but an extensive series of deals with Pyongyang. To essentially do an exchange, well, we'll just we'll start expanding trade routes of oil and gas um, as a means for North Korea to continue to assist with Iran's technological developments towards ballistic missiles, as well as a nascent uh, nuclear program. So now we're starting to understand it. Also, if you look at the extended energy uh, partnership between Iran 
and the People's Republic of China. So moving on, as Iran continued to increasingly provide North Korea with oil and gas, North Korea, vice versa, gave Iran direct access to their ballistic missile technologies and the production licenses. And this was reported uh, by the United States intelligence community. They knew that this was happening. That Iran was essentially the, the largest client, military client, for the North Koreans. As Pyongyang was providing Iran with extensive ballistic missile technological blueprints. Um, in the in a report by the uh, U.S. intelligence community, it stated, and I quote, that one of the recipients of the 1,000-kilometer uh, Nodong was the Islamic Republic of, of Iran. And that by the end of the 1990s, Iran was able to assemble SCUD-B and SCUD-C, as well as medium-range Nodong ballistic missiles. So this partnership of convenience the utilizing of energy resources in order to ensure the the security of the Iranian mainland or homeland at that point, as well as to get closer weapons-wise to the ideological enemy, which at this point is not just the United States, but also the state of Israel. Uh, but as we see that as Iran continued with the expansion of their ballistic missiles, they also provided these blueprints or at least physical uh, production or finished products of ballistic missiles to their clients such as Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis. Um, we see that a lot, whether that's you know the reason for Iran to have the Iron Dome uh, we saw that in the Lebanese civil war, and we see that in the current Yemeni um, civil war. So with that understanding of how North Korea contributed to the development of the Iranian ballistic missile uh, program and, and its very beginnings, you also have to understand the Chinese assistance to this. And it was pretty much the same thing. That Iran was like, well, we'll give you oil and gas trade if you provide us with continual access to ballistic missile technologies. In 1989, uh, Iran was able to receive what's known as 200 um, M7, or to the Chinese CSS-8, uh, road mobile ballistic missiles. Uh, but at that point, Iran wanted something that was much more, much more um, extensive in the duration of the range. However, they still took it. You know, rather to have the short range in addition to the North Korean medium range, um, that allows Iran to have a plethora of not just capabilities but also a variety of options, including warheads and um, types of fuels and. Um, type of munitions it can be used to deter uh, perceived enemies or threats to national security. Um, this relationship between People's Republic of China and Iran continues to this very day. Even with the kind of the dissolution of the 2015 nuclear treaty, 
you still see that China is still the main purchaser of Iranian oil. Um, well, that being said, we kind of have to move on to the implementation, not the implementation, rather, but the, the contributions that Russia has given to the Islamic Republic. So we said that starting in 1982 to 1987, Iran started to acquire ballistic missile technology from the People's Republic of China, as well as North Korea. They have acquired not just Scud B and Scud C missiles, but they also acquired medium range Nodongs and M8s, oh, M7 um, short range ballistic, mobile uh, ballistic missiles. Uh, with that, um, Iran was able to produce what's known as the Shahab 1, as well as the Shahab 2, uh, which is their versions of Scud B and Scud C short range ballistic missiles. The introduction now, once we start to get really into medium range ballistic missiles and Iranian based cruise missiles, that really comes from um, the night starting in the 1990s, really towards the dissolution of the Soviet Union. A lot of uh, during this time, Russia was a was a, a mess. Quite honestly, um, there were grave national security problems, as a lot, at least a third of Soviet Union nuclear warheads were located in Ukraine. There were other few, at least thousand, in Kazakhstan. And in addition to that, there's still submarine nuclear submarines with nuclear warheads, um, and them still lost at sea. They don't know where it's at. Um, there's a very huge problem now. There are a lot of this dangerous. Um, Soviet technology and information, even towards the, the, the Soviet biological weapons program. Um, there's a very dangerous precedent now that this massive geopolitical giant of Eurasia has now dissolved literally overnight. But at that extent, so too is now the, the massive Soviet military umbrella as all in disarray. So when this happened, Russia provided assistance to the development of Iranian medium-range uh, ballistic missile program. And how they did this, and this is according to the Rumsfeld Commission in 1997, that Russia provided Iran with necessary ballistic missile technologies as well as components such as um, the SS-4 medium-range ballistic missiles from the 1950s um, that they had to give up due to the intermediate-range uh, nuclear forces treaty. Um, because of this, now Iran was able to produce and develop their Shahab 3, as well as their Shahab 4 meter range ballistic missile uh, programs. Uh, the main problem for Iran is that even though they're able to you know, domestically produce ballistic missiles, even to this very day, and the same thing goes back to the 1980s, they still depend very heavily on the importation of ballistic missile technologies, primarily from North Korea, but also China, potentially from uh, Russia. Um, and they use these components really to continue to enhance the, the precision of the ballistic missiles, um, the the range of the ballistic missiles, the different types of warheads for these ballistic missiles, as well as to improve their space program. And if you look at the missiles, or at least the space shuttles, uh, rockets that are used to launch satellites into space, 
the technology is very much the same towards the development of intercontinental ballistic missiles um, in order for you to utilize and expand, well, not expand, but to then use multiple re-entry warheads um, on a particular target to maximize damage. Um, so that's kind of one of the, some of the main problems that we see now that the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, is effectively able to Essentially, now they they have a three stage ballistic missile capable of possessing a nuclear warhead. Once that warhead is done, and then despite the sanctions, Iran is still pursuing with increased uranium centrifuges. Now, you know, they've doubled the amount of centrifuges. All that does is minimize the time that they need to enrich the proper uranium to produce one to two nuclear warheads. But even to produce the, the nuclear warheads and then to test their stability to be placed into an actual warhead and then on top of a ballistic missile, that could take some time as well. Uh, but back to the Russian contribution, which really was very significant in comparison to the North Koreans and the Chinese because not only did they provide them with components and technology from Soviet uh, ballistic missile technologies, but they also provided them with special alloys as well as uh, foils, or missile foils that, that are used to shield the guidance systems. Um, they also provided them with tungsten coated graphite to use for... Um, the missile body. Uh, they also provided them the guidance technologies will eventually transition to precision guided munitions, the rocket engines, the fuel technologies, uh, re-entry vehicles needed for the warheads, laser equipments, uh, as well as the maintenance manuals. And in 1997, all of this is from Rumsfeld Commission, um, Russia themselves admitted that Iranians were accepted into Russian universities to gain knowledge similar to how the North Koreans were brought to Russia uh, for the same reasons on missile construction and engineering in order to further expand the Iranian program. Uh, the two particular uh, universities that they went to was the Bauman Institute, uh, the Baltic State Technical University, and ironically, an organization called MPO Energy Mash, which is for people that don't know, it is a joint Russian-Iranian missile facility, uh, which was established and conducts operations in both Iran and in Russia. Now, that being said, now that they've had the direct access to technology, the maintenance uh, manuals, um, and the wherewithal since the 1980s, not just from Iran and North Korea and China, they're able to now to be somewhat quasi-independent in their development of ballistic missiles, uh, which you know, seemingly every other month or every few other months, they're releasing a new image of a new ballistic missile or greater capabilities. But that's still, you know, for the Iranians, that still only gives them a certain range. We gotta remember that the whole objective of this ballistic missile uh, program is to ensure that the Iranian homeland can't be invaded as easily without heightened risks, but also to demonstrate that Iran 
can hit their enemies at any place at any time. The bulk of Iranian uh, ballistic missiles are shot either from underground missile silos across the the mountainous desert regions, so therefore it's very hard to detect them until after uh, detonation. Or they're mobile, which gives Iran a very strategic capability to have these short range or medium range in one location and have them towed essentially to a different location in the same day. And then launch it as a surprise attacks. We see that, well, we saw that uh, this past February. I'm um, sorry, January. When the U.S. military bases in Iraq, after the death of Qasem uh, Soleimani, Iran launched 15 ballistic missiles. Granted, some of them failed, but the whole intention of it with these precision munitions was essentially a psychological effect that we can target you at any time at any place even more so in the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia and portions of Iraq if Iran wanted to attack Israel which they have been trying to do at least since the 1980s during the the Lebanese uh, civil war hence the creation of Hamas and Hezbollah Iran can essentially use their proxies in Iraq and Syria to establish these newer facilities under the IRGC and deploy ballistic missiles that way. Or they can continue to develop their ballistic missile cap uh, capabilities to the point where they can start to have long-range ballistic missiles so that they can reach Israel from launching missiles from mainland Iran. Another capacity would be the development of cruise missiles, primarily nuclear-tipped cruise missiles. That's a, a major breakthrough, and Iran does have that capabilities. Um, this is primarily due to the fact that towards the end of the 1990s, Iran was able to acquire approximately 12 KH-55 cruise missiles through their Ukrainian black market in 2001. And they used this to establish what's called the Sumar cruise missile in 2015 when it was when it's revealed. Uh, the difference primarily is that although it's somewhat of the same missile, that the KH-55 cruise missile is primarily air-launched and the Sumar is ground-launched. But you change, if you change the missile fuelage and the, the calibrations of um, how it's launched, pretty sure that you can essentially convert an air-launched missile to a ground-launched one. And once you master uh, this cruise missile understanding, at least this understanding of how to convert ballistic and cruise missiles into either air-launched or ground-launched, Iran continued that to create something called the Hovius uh, cruise missile, which is in the same tier as the U.S. Tomahawk cruise missile. I'm not saying that it has the same type of success rate and you know historical usage, but what I mean by the it is in the same classification is that it's essentially almost the same in regards to its range and operations. Over the past thirty-two. 33 years now, uh, about 33 years now, Iran, due to its ballistic missile capacities as well as its cruise missile capacity, 
Iran, and in addition to its proxy network, where through the quote unquote, as they label it, uh, logistical um, assistance to, you know, Qatar, Hezbollah, or um, the Taliban, Al Shabaab, um, Hamas, Hezbollah, Houthis, um, the popular mobilization forces, and other proxies. These, this ballistic missile program, as well as the screws missile program, provides Iran with an effective range that covers essentially the entirety of the Middle East up to the Sinai Peninsula, um, as far into Asia as into, let's say, Pakistan and parts of Western India, um, northern Africa up to like to Libya, uh, Central Europe up to, let's say, Bosnia Herzegovina. In Eastern Europe, as far as uh, southern Ukraine. With this, Iran is effectively establishing a, a, a web of not just ballistic missile capacities and a deterrent or to perceived adversaries, such as the United States, but also using that ballistic missile capacity with their extensive regional or even now global. Uh, proxy slash terrorist network. The the whole initiative was to was to bring the Middle East and surrounding environments into its defense strategy to increase the risks to allow Iran to expand its influences to become what they wish to be, and that is to be the center of the Muslim world. Now, granted, with its now uh, over 40-year regional Cold War with um, Saudi Arabia, this has given more incentive for Iran to produce these ballistic missiles to target Saudi uh, strategic energy resources, as well as trade routes, energy trade routes, over 20, at least 25% of global Oil trading goes through the Persian Gulf. The Strait of Hormuz is a very strategic choke point to possess. Well, we see that, quite frankly, because of Iran's military capabilities and the imperial military of the IRGC, which is essentially a secondary armed forces in itself, not only does Iran possess these ballistic missile capabilities and growing cruise missile capabilities, but also their anti-ship capabilities. In a way, they have their own um, any access aerial denial uh, strategy that they can target oil tankers, cargo tankers in the Persian Gulf and use that as a bargaining tool to not just secure their national security, but also as a means to show the world that they have the capacity to do it. They're launching other ballistic missiles against, the, against uh, U.S. troops based in Iraq. The providing of ballistic missiles or even the launching of ballistic missiles out of Yemen and targeting Saudi Arabian oil. Not only now is the Persian Gulf under direct threat and Arabian um, vital energy infrastructure is under, under direct threat, but even the Bab el-Mandab Strait, which is the area between Yemen and Ethiopia, rich and Somalia, that's under constant threat because of the Houthis. Now that they have ballistic missile technology, drone technology, anti-ship missile technology, they too now can threaten vital 
trading routes. All of this is under the Iranian political ge uh, geographical advantage of how they have incorporated the entirety of the Middle East and North Africa into their military, their own defense grand strategy as a means to increase the risk for the United States to continue their operations to subsequently have them leave the Middle East and allow for Iran to supplant itself as the dominant regional power. That being said, we have to look now at well, what is, what left is there to do? Well, there's a lot of things that we could actually do, but that has to come to the wherewithal of well, is it really worth it? There's the you know very hawkish people to say that oh well we should do preemptive strikes on nuclear on Iranian nuclear centrifuges. There's even more hawkish people that stated that oh in retaliation we should target Iranian religious sites. There are more sure practical people that indicate that, well, what we should do as the United States is that we should invest and assist our regional allies with development of their own domestic industry, uh, defense industry so then they can develop a regional apparatus of their own and the United States can establish themselves in much more of a support role. In the meantime, we have our Patriot systems and a few THAAD systems located in the Middle East uh, to deter Iranian ballistic missile launches against American assets. But is that really worth it long term? The objective should be for our regional allies to become even more security-wise interdependent, especially GCC states that are under constant threat by Iranian subversion tactics. They must have a robust defense sector of their own, established primarily in uh, service-to-air uh, missile systems, anti-ballistic missile systems, expanded radar sensor system, uh, systems, telecommunications. These are then their own potential uh, conventional ballistic missile systems. Granted, Saudi Arabia did buy around 1985, 1986, uh, Chinese medium-range medium ballistic missiles. But that's not enough. There has, to, there has to be a comprehensive strategy to protect global energy resources, global energy markets, and global energy trading routes, especially from the Persian Gulf and the Bab el-Mandab Strait. With the continual Iranian um, web of proxies where they can attack American assets and personnel and allies but have the maximum capacity of plausible deniability there's it's a very bleak prosperous future so the 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 goal should be the uplifting of regional allies with the United States portraying itself as a uh, secondary logistical uh, support role and the development of a domestic robust defense sector so that's a we are actually going to go a little bit more in um, detail um, for kind of some of the the specific types of missiles that Iran has at their uh, disposal. Um, just give a quick, a little quick information on them, their capabilities when they entered service, um, how they developed. Um, in their purpose and it's important to know 
at least the framework of where Iran was in the 1980s and where they are now. And then despite continual sanctions, Iran is still able to develop uh, the largest ballistic missile arsenal in the Middle East. So the Iranian ballistic missile arsenal really started with uh, liquid, liquid fuel propellant missiles. And that started with the acquisition of the Scud B uh, ballistic missiles, uh, which they renamed as the Shahab, and then that turned into the Shahab 1, uh, the Shahab 1 and the, the Shahab 2. Uh, where they are now with these um, ballistic missiles is that they were able to expand its range to essentially 205 miles as the, the intention was to try to get as close to Israel as possible. But now, with the Shahab 1 and the Shahab 2, they had the capabilities of being equipped with high explosive chemical, biological, and eventually uh, nuclear warheads. That's the danger, is that now that they have a, a repertoire of different types of warheads that can be utilized depending on their perceived level of danger that their national security and their homeland. Uh, with the assistance from China and Russia, they've gained even more accurate guidance uh, precision technology as well as the assistance in the production of missile launchers. Therefore, they have the growing art of surprise. The problem that the United States doesn't have, what the, the problem that the, the United States has, is that we don't have mobile, mobile uh, ballistic missile launchers. We don't have that capabilities. All of ours are primarily missile silos or from submarines. Therefore, you can say, though, if the submarine is silent, you still have the art of surprise with the launching of submarine launched ballistic missiles, SLBMs. But at the same time, you have a submarine uh, launch ballistic missile that has to be in the proper range, um, ocean-wise, and hopefully not to not be detected. In addition to a ground launch mobile uh, ballistic missile um, weapon, essentially, that can also provide the art of surprise. Um, but in a more in a much more versatile uh, way. Um, the difference there that the Shahab two has the range of the now range of uh, two hundred five due to two hundred five miles. The continuation of the development of ballistic missiles. Uh, the Shahab one has now been expanded to approximately three hundred and ten miles. So now we're starting to get into closer and closer for Iran to target Baghdad at will. Um, and, they, and they've had this uh, capabilities really since 2010. Um, but even with this, as um, which would have been the smart thing to do, the Iranians didn't just keep the Shahab 1 and Shahab 2. They made variants of the Shahab 2, and that became the Qayyam 1. And these are still short-range ballistic missile systems, but the concept of it is that you have a much smaller ballistic missile uh, with a, a somewhat different body frame and because there's the, a smaller warhead a much more agile body and a different uh, launching fin missile fin the Kion one now has a long a, a much larger range 
Uh, now it has a 400 and approximately 497 mile range, which now exceeds Baghdad, and now you're getting closer and closer into Syria and closer and closer to Israel. I'm just like the Shahab 1 and 2. Um, Qayyam 1, at least the Qayyam series, has much more high uh, diversity. So not just high explosive or conventional warheads, but now you get into high explosive fragmentation rounds, um, submunitions. So the the bomb essentially punches this delivery to a target. It wants it explodes, explodes down to other fragments, expanding its explosion uh, radius and uh, lethality, but also submunitions. So there are smaller munitions within the warhead. Um, from this, now we're starting to get into the learning and development, into the mastery of the short range and moving into the, the mobile uh, medium range ballistic missile. Um, that was a direct copy from the 1980s uh, Nodong uh, North Korean missile. So this was called the Shahab 3. Um, it still kept the main components, however, changing the size of the warhead, the missile trajectory from the tail fin, the body of the weapon, has a larger range now, 807 miles. The <laughs> with 807 miles, you're you're basically in Lebanon. You're you're in Syria, so Iran can, if it really wanted to, target enemies targets in Syria from mainland Iran. The beauty of Iran's strategy is that technically it doesn't even have to launch from mainland Iran because of its extensive networks, its infiltration of the Iraqi government establishment of the popular mobilization forces and various other uh, Shiite or pro-Khamenei's um, organizations. Iran has a direct pathway from their border into Iraq and Syria to get close to, to Israel. From the Shahab 3 ballistic missile that said it has a, a range of 807 miles, Iran modernized this technology and made two new ones, two new um, missiles called Imad and Gada, which are both uh, medium-range ballistic missiles. Um, they're similar to the Shahab 3, uh, but they have a much more reduced weight, which allows for a longer range. The Gada 1 has a range of 1,211 miles, and the Imad has a range of 1,000 and 56 miles so with that type of capabilities we're now looking at the national security problem that that provides to the state of Israel the now Iran has the capacity to at will even from Iraq if they're able to get an Imad or Qara 1 into Iraq they can hit anywhere in Israel. Now, granted, Israel does have nuclear weapons. Whether they want to deny, they deny it or confirm it, they have anti-ballistic missile defense systems, things of that nature, primarily contributed by um, the United States and, to an extent, India. Um, but beyond that point, 
It shows that Iran is mastering the notions of missile re-entry warheads. Um, they're mastering the options of air burst detonations, so detonations that don't necessarily have to hit the target physically. It can, once it gets over a particular coordinate, it explodes in the air. And then they're going into the notions of EMPs, electromagnetic pulses, which are not necessarily hazardous to humans, but it destroys all type of electronic capabilities that can be used, therefore completely uh, disabling a very technologically advanced military, such as the United States or China or Russia, um, as well as to wipe out or fry power grids, power plants, dams, um, things things that depend on the usage of technology and electricity, EMPs will systematically wipe it out either for a period of time or for a long-term destruction. So you can you can imagine the, the severity of, let's say, an EMP-type warhead on an ICBM launched at Eastern Coast of the United States. And New York City has an entire century. It's a blackout for days, for weeks, for months. It disrupts supply lines food supplies, um, water supplies um, that disables infrastructure. It, it slows the, you know, it causes economic downturns. Um, this is very serious stuff. All of this from the notion of the War of the Cities from 1984 to 1987, 1988, that Iran has felt that it is, safe, it is the safest way for them to secure their borders is by having this robust, dangerous, lethal, versatile, uh, ballistic missile design across the region. From there, we get into now the Fateh uh, series, which is an Iranian ballistic missile, solid propellant missile series. Um, kind of like the Shahab 1 and 2, it has the same type of... Um, Warheads, so high explosive biological potential uh, nuclear warheads. Well, this one they have a much more, a much a shorter range. The Fatah uh, series, 186 miles. Um, but that doesn't really expand until 2016, uh, where they had the variant of the Fatah um, series. You get the Zofagar uh, missiles, missile series that came out in 2016. Uh, with a range of 434 miles, which poses the greatest threat to Iranian uh, neighbors, such as Saudi Arabia and the GCC, um, Arab Gulf states. Um, this gave pave, is paved the way to greater Iranian cooperation towards the expansion of their cruise missiles. So getting back to the Sumar. A cruise missile that came from the the KH-55 air launch, the Russian air launch cruise missile, and the Sumar is a long range cruise missile that has the range of well, at least projected range of 1,553 miles. Um, to keep that into consideration, to kind of give you an understanding of how large that range is, this gives Iran uh, the capability to target uh, individuals, military installations, facilities in Central Europe. Eastern Europe, Egypt, Afghanistan, Pakistan, the entirety of the Middle East, and the vast majority of Washington, India. So where are we now?
with the continual help from Iran, uh, from North Korea to Iran, China to Iran, Russia to Iran. Iran continues to grow their ballistic missiles despite extensive uh, economic sanctions, military uh, arms embargo, and they've been placed onto them um, ever since the, the failure of the 2015 nuclear treaty and the withdrawal of the, of the United States. Um, Iran is inching closer and closer day by day, minute by minute, towards the acquiring of nuclear warheads, uh, which they've stated is a top priority for their defense industry, for their national pride. At this time, Iran can hit anywhere within the range of 1,553 miles. And that is of grave, grave presence. But at the same time, Iran still heavily dependent on the importation of critical ballistic missile technologies from those three main contributors. Therefore, they're not fully independent yet on the, the, the domestic development and modernization of precision precision-guided technologies for their ballistic missiles. Uh, at this point, Iran can hit Israel. Um, but at this current moment, their main goal is to ensure, one, the immediate relinquishing of all these sanctions to get back to the nuclear treaty. The United States <laughs> pays them for, quote, as they call it, economic terrorism. Um, they're able to go back to producing uranium for uh, civilian usage. The, they're able to establish a deal with the European Union for further economic financial assistance and programs trading. Um, but simultaneously, they don't want to let go of their extensive, their massive uh, regional apparatus of terrorism. They don't want to halt the actions of the IRGC. They wish to continue on their course on becoming the leaders of the Muslim world, dethroning Saudi Arabia. And most importantly, they wish to continue to entrench their influences um, in Yemen and Syria, as well as Iraq. Um, and this notion of what's the concept of Shiitization, where Iran is able to achieve essentially a land bridge from their main borders all the way to the eastern Mediterranean. Um, that in itself has very dangerous precedent um, as that will give Iran direct access to then the establishment of installations of anti-ship missiles or ballistic missiles um, directly in the Mediterranean which further provides disastrous risks to United States national and defense security strategies, as well as NATO um, in the Mediterranean Sea. At the same time, though, that provides challenges to Turkey and Syria and Turkey's ambitions in the Mediterranean um, to revive these notions of the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire. Um, that also challenges the Mediterranean strategies of Russia. Russia depends on the Black Sea and their naval ports in Syria as well as the Mediterranean for direct access to warm water ports and access to international trading lanes. If, if Iran disrupts that, then, then we get into 
a a new chapter of political geography of how would Turkey and how would the Russian Federation seek to reduce the growing influences of Iran and countries such as Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, even in Palestine, Sinai Peninsula, potentially even now in Libya after the ousting of Muammar Gaddafi, uh, the former ties in Afghanistan with the Taliban, um, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, um, even the small Shiite populations in, Niger in Nigeria that venerate uh, the Ayatollah. Um, and also who wish to establish an Iranian-style form of theocracy in Nigeria. How does that then portray into the Iranian influences in South America and the tri-border area uh, between Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina, primarily through the black market, uh, as well as the Iranian influences in Venezuela, as well as Cuba? All of this has to be taken into the position and stems back into those notions of Iranian security, uh, security insecurity, that they must have space capabilities to use that towards enhancing Iranian telecommunications to eventually use that to expand Iranian ballistic missiles to produce intercontinental ballistic missiles that can target the mainland United States as a means of deterring. It is the same exact thing that North Korea is seeking to do and, are, and is continuing to do since the days of Kim Il-sung, at least privately it was Kim Il-sung, but then it came into light and then we're very aware of the North Korean capabilities of being able to hit at least Alaska and the West Coast. Some people even say up to the Midwest Iran, for Iran, it has to be the same thing, to be able to hit mainland United States as a means to bring the United States to the bargaining table, establish their dominance in, in, in the uh, the Middle Eastern region against uh, the influences of, United, of the United States, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and particular uh, GCC countries such as the UAE, and essentially to bring glory that they believe um, Iran has lost since the days of the Persian Empire, but instead of Zoroastrianism, is under Shia Islam. And with that, I'd like to thank you for the discussion. And I want you to contemplate, if you can, on, well, what do you think the geopolitical threat assessments of Iran's ballistic missile uh, program and capability should be? What are some of the threats? to the United States and regional allies in the Middle East. What are some solutions that could be used to tackle these grave um, complications and challenges to global trade routes, energy trade routes, and trade lanes in the Strait of Hormuz, the Persian Gulf, and the Bab al-Mandab Strait? And if you if you were a policymaker, what, what would you do uh, to combat the growing Iranian influences not just in the Middle East and in Africa, but also the Caribbean and South America. With that in mind, this is Maj Mandal, your host of the Ge Geopolitical Pivot. I look forward to our next discussion on the implications of where we are and a continually unstabilizing global order. And with that, I bid you farewell. Until next time.